what matters? I mean, what really matters? And how do you know? Think back in the family that you grew up in and ask yourself, what really mattered in that home? What really mattered in my family of origin? And how do you know? How did you decide what it is that mattered? Or today, think of it this way, many of us have lots of responsibilities, right? If you're married, you have a responsibility to your spouse. If you have children, you have a responsibility to your children. If you have a job, you have a responsibility to the one who's giving you the paycheck. What matters in each of these situations? I mean, what really matters? And how do you decide? But could we turn the question a little differently? What matters to God? What really matters? And then how do you decide? We're just a couple weeks away from Easter, as Brad was saying. And what I want to do in the next couple of weeks is look at and explore the heart of God as it's revealed in Scripture. So each week we're going to take just one element of God. This morning we're going to look at God's desires because it exposes His heart. Then we're going to look at His, his zeal or His dedication and look at where He's going. And then the third week I want to look at His tenderness. All of these things expose the heart of God. Well, this morning, if you have a Bible or a device, if you would open with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I really would like to just take a couple verses and look at what God has to say through two verses. Let's go deep with just a couple. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Father, we want to know your heart. We want to know your passions. We want to see you in fresh ways. And so whether we're here in the worship center, whether we're online, God, would you open our eyes to the truth that's embedded in these few verses that we would understand, appreciate your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we look at these things, certainly we, we get a sense pretty quickly of the first thing, and that is that Jesus will return, right? That, that, that's the big thing, is that He is going to return. And yet there's, in this passage, a, a, a challenge that is, is taking place, and that is that people were scoffing at what was happening, that Jesus was not returning. Now, Jesus was raised, 
I take the date of 30 AD. This was written in the middle 60s, and so Peter is towards the end of his ministry, and they're still waiting for the Lord to return. But let's back up just a little bit to verse 4 and get a sense here of what Peter is writing as we look at this. He says in verses 3 and 4, he says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, these are the days in which we're living right now. It's from the coming of Christ, the first advent of Christ. Some will put it at advent, or uh, not advent, uh, the resurrection or Pentecost. But in the last days, there's going to be some scoffers, people mocking. And what are they mocking? They're mocking this thing about where is this coming he promised. Second Peter, a central idea of the entire book of Second Peter is the return of Jesus Christ. And of course, that was a big part of the entire Old Testament was there was a looking, a waiting, a hoping for the Messiah to come and establish his kingdom. And so when Jesus left this earth, he said, I am coming back. And yet there's this question, where is he? Where is this coming he promised? As we think about this, we know that Jesus, if we read our scriptures from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, there's two predominant ideas that come through that Jesus is coming back as a king, as a ruler, as the sovereign Lord over the entire universe. Like there will be no one doubting who is in charge, right? That's the picture the scriptures want you and me to have about the return of the Messiah or the return of Jesus Christ. The second is that he is coming back as a judge. He is coming back as a judge. Just remember those two words, king and judge. Now, as we think about this, it's a return to this earth. Now, that's important. That's important. That's really, really important. Now, let me tell you why. I believe it is so important to see that this Jesus that we worship is returning to this earth. The first is hope. Hope is so important. Now, when I use the word hope, I'm not talking about wishful thinking. You know, wishful thinking, March Madness is coming, the University of Illinois has a shot to do something, and that's just wishful thinking that something might happen, right? No, I'm talking about a hope, a confident assurance of something. That's how the Bible uses hope. There's this confident assurance that Jesus is returning. So when we look at the Old Testament and we see the promise of the coming of the Messiah, so often they saw the second coming and they struggled to see the first coming where he was going to suffer, where he was going to be put on the cross. That they struggled with. The part they loved was that he was coming back. And that was their hope. That was their internal confidence for life. Now, for Christianity, this is so important that we constantly put in front of us this hope. 
I love talking about it. In fact, I've just put together our series for May, and I'm so excited looking at the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, looking at these end-time things that are so important. The scriptures are filled with it because we need this hope in a day like this. Or if we say it, after the year that we've been through, we need hope. And let me be really clear, too. All of us have suffered. All of us have struggled with stuff. All of us, whether it's relational stuff, where we've been betrayed, where people have turned against us, where we've lived with disappointment, where we've lived with brokenness, we need something to give us hope. Some of us have lived with health issues, people fighting cancer, people losing loved ones. As we walk through this world, we find suffering. All we have to do is open up our devices and see the news. And there's wars and conflicts happening all over the place. Then you have natural disasters. We need hope. And so constantly the scriptures are pushing us to this place of hope when there will be no more tears, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more illnesses. But now there's another place I want to go. And this is a second reason I think it's important for us to focus on the return of Christ. Not only hope, but here's the second one. Vindication. Vindication. Now why do I say that? Because justice matters. We are not the judge. We are not the ones that can make it right. But what God wants to do on this earth is settle the score. And if he doesn't return to this earth, then who or how does the score get settled? You say, well, wait a minute. What score are you talking about? I'm talking about the men and women that have suffered terrible abuse. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's psychological. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's sexual. Who's going to make that right? Who's going to settle that score when there's been abuse? Or when people have been oppressed? Who's going to make all this right? Or when we look at what's going on in the world, in our own country with racism, living in a racialized world where it's a hotbed ready to explode, who, when, is this going to be made right? We're so blind we don't even see it, but one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to settle this score and he's going to make it right. All the fallout from brokenness, all of it, Whether you grew up in a broken home, you've coming out of a broken home now, you've seen your marriage struggle, break apart, and you have fought for it with all of your energy, and you have been trampled on, and God sees it. Who's going to make it right? The Lord's going to make it right. He says in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, don't you take revenge. It's not for you to have this vengeance. Leave room for God. And then he says this, for it's written, vengeance is mine. That's the vindication. That's God making it right. So when we look at this and we look at Jesus returning, where is this coming? I'm telling you, it is an exciting day to think about the return of Jesus Christ. Now, as we go back into these verses of 8 and 9 that we just read, let me find my own pad here got pushed out 
as we look at this in verses 8 and 9, look what it says, but do not forget this one thing. Look what he says, loved ones, people that are loved by God and loving each other. He says this, he says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. We live in a day when it's all about now, immediate gratification. (laughs) It's always been this way, right? We're human at at best. I mean, think about this when you're a child, right? You, You start anticipating Christmas and you're planning and thinking about it as a child. We even have Christmas calendars to count off the days. Today, my, my grandchildren, uh, two of them, I, my identical twin girls, they're turning, they're seven years old today. You know when they started counting? Back in January, right? They just keep looking for this day to celebrate. For the entrepreneurs here, let me give you an idea. You know how we have these advent calendars that count the days down? We should have birthday calendars that count the days down. So you don't have to ask it. But as an adult, Usually what we get to is a lifetime. It's not so much counting days or counting weeks, but it seems like a long time to say a lifetime. But in God's perspective, a thousand years is as a day. It's so radically different. And so as we look at this passage, it says that the Lord is not We're going to come back to that word in a moment in keeping his promises. It says, as some understand slowness, instead he is patient. He says he's not wanting anyone to perish. We see this this passage comes out of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, which says this, It says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. In some of the Greek translations of the Old Testament, that word delay is the same word of slow in 2 Peter. But let's get the context of Habakkuk just for a moment. In Habakkuk, The prophet is crying out to God. He's crying out to God and he's saying, Foul! There's an error, God, in your plan. And God, I'm angry with you. And here's the problem. God was mobilizing the Babylonians to discipline Judah. You say, what's wrong with that? What's the big deal? Well, Habakkuk lays out the big deal. He's saying to God, God, you think Judah is bad. The Babylonians take evil and wickedness to a whole new level. And God, you're going to use the Babylonians to discipline us? I don't get the math. Go figure. And so Habakkuk chapter 1 He's just pouring out his heart in anger with God. So then when we get to chapter 2, God says, now let me speak. He says, give me a shot at this. 
And that's what we're reading here. The revelation, the vision, awaits an appointed time. Justice is coming. I'm going to deal with the Babylonians. Don't you worry about it. That's my problem. You've got enough on your own plate. You see how God responds? He says, and it speaks of the end. Well, the end of what? Well, the end of the captivity with Babylonian, with the Babylonian Empire, 70 years. But it pushes forward all the way to the return of Jesus Christ that 2 Peter is talking about. So Habakkuk was grasping in some way, some fashion, that God was going to do amazing things. And then the insight, though it linger. Though it linger. So there it sits. We need to be constantly recognizing that God is not slow. But let me give you the second point here, very simply. It's this. The focus is not about his delay, but his desire. That's where Second Peter's going. It's not about the delay of the return of Jesus Christ. It's about the very heart of God that becomes so, so significant. This is what it says in First Timothy chapter 2. Who wants God, who wants all people to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of him. Look what it says. He wants all people. There's this heart of God. Mission isn't about something you do. Mission is about the very heart of God. The things that, that really, really matter. We see the same thing in Ezekiel. Look what it says here. It says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, I am not pleased when they turn away from their ways and live. Their wicked ways, right? God is not pleased in the death of the wicked people. When we read the word desire, when we come back here and we see this word desire, that God is wanting no one, right? This is His desire is that no one would perish. He will not delay in keeping his promise it's about God's love that's what this desire is all about now you ask yourself well how do you know this really matters to God if you take your Bible and read it what we begin to see over and over is there is a thread from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the book of Revelation about God's love what kind of love? A love that is drawing people into relationship with him. We see this in the Garden of Eden. As soon as they sinned, rebelled against God, what did he do? He sacrificed animals and gave them skins, a blood sacrifice pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And you see that thread of God constantly wanting to pull people into relationship with him because he loves people. It's his desire for them. The whole Bible can't be read without an understanding of this redeeming kind of love. Or, some of you miss this, but if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Those four Gospels. 
There's a trigger in every one of them. And here's the trigger. And I'm going to point it out for you so you can read it the next time you're in the Gospels. When you read Matthew, there's 28 chapters. But all of a sudden you get to the place where Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going there to go to the cross to demonstrate the love of God and to bring people into relationship with him. When does that start? Well, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. So early in the gospel that over half the gospel or about half the gospel is all about God demonstrating his love through the cross of Jesus Christ. Mark 16 chapters. Where does it start talking about Jerusalem? Mark chapter 10, verse 32. So early in the gospel, it's all pointing to the love of God demonstrated at the cross to bring people like you and me into relationship. Luke, 24 chapters. Where does it start? Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Jesus sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. You know why? To demonstrate his love for you and for me. These gospels are written with so much emphasis on the thing that matters to God. And it's his love poured out through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel of John, 21 chapters. Chapter 10, verse 22. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Why? To demonstrate his love. And you know, the upper room starts in John chapter 13, and all the rest of the gospel is just pouring out about the last days of Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son, and so the Son sends us. We can read that as something to do, but I wonder if it's not more of who we're supposed to be about or what we're supposed to be about and that is experiencing this love of God those people that have experienced the love of God know what I'm talking about those people right here or online that have experienced that know the love of God know what I'm talking about let me just give you a couple pictures. Luke chapter 7. There's a woman. Her past is sordid. Not very pretty. Not something you want to write in a letter to mom. And what do we see? We see her weeping as she comes into the presence of Jesus Christ to anoint him. What a powerful picture while people were judging Jesus for accepting someone like her, Jesus received her and loved her and accepted her. Luke chapter 18. Two guys walk into the church, into the synagogue, into the temple. One man was patting himself on the back. The other man couldn't even look to heaven. You know why? Because he knew that he was not a holy man and he stood before a holy God that loved 
him and cared about him. But perhaps, perhaps one of the people that we should think about when we think about this love of God and people that really, really know the love of God would be King David. Now, now many of us know that King David, he, he was the man after God's own heart. But let's just put his stuff out on the table. He was a polygamist. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. His family life was in chaos. There was rape and incest among his family members. There were power plays by his own son to take him down. I mean, we could just go on and on about the terrible, messy life of David. But David knew something. He knew that God loved him. Who can comprehend a love like this? Where God looks and he says, I don't care what's in that past. I don't care. I love you. This is the fire in God's heart. So you get to Psalm 27. And David, all this stuff in his life. And he says, there's one thing I seek. And it's to be in the temple. To be in the temple. In the house of God all the days of my life. You understand what he's saying? Maybe not yet. A couple verses later in the psalm, David says this. I seek your face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. You understand what he's saying? First of all, you've got to know God doesn't have a face, right? God is spirit. He's saying, I'm seeking the presence of God. I'm seeking the favor of God. There's a place to go where shame gets erased and guilt gets deleted and there's this basking in the love of God. And if you know Jesus Christ, you get a taste of this love and the more you experience this love, the more passion you have for others to experience this love. It's not about me saying, hey, we got to go out there. It's about us experiencing the love of God so it burst out of us because we've experienced something that the world wants and we have it. Oh, you can imagine David writing this psalm and saying, I want to be in the love of the Father. I want to enjoy that. I want to be free of this body of death. I am tired of carrying my stuff of adultery and murder and polygamy and a family that's cracked apart. I want to rest in the love of God. That's what Easter is all about. So when we read this simple verse, what we begin to see is something very clear for all of us. The delay of Jesus' return spotlights His desire. It spotlights it. It it puts a huge floodlight on the very heart 
of God. He does not want anyone to perish. There are more people alive today that need to know the love of Christ than have ever lived in the history of the world. It's an amazing thought to think about it. And here we are experiencing the love of God. This is his heart. If you want to know what matters, what really matters to God, it's his heart, his love for people, even people far from him. Let us experience more profoundly, more deeply his love that it would spill out of us for those around us. Father, this is something supernatural. It's something that we cannot conjure up. It's not something we can force. It's something, God, that you, as you pour out your love in our hearts, would just spill out as we tell people how exciting it is to be cleansed, to be adopted into a new family, to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, to know that I know the love of God that accepts me unconditionally. Oh God, those are the kind of people we want to be at Fox Valley Church. People that are filled and overwhelmed with the very love of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray.